Well, this is the third week of introducing the Sermon on the Mount. I'd say we're just at the start of probably studying this book, even though it's a 12-minute sermon, if you can imagine. If you read through it, it takes 12 minutes. Uh, It probably could take six months of preaching, uh, but it's just 12 minutes. And isn't this wonderful? You all brought Bibles. <laughs> now, kind of an expensive proposition, but uh, somebody has uh, given the Advent a great blessing. Um, I picked up one as well. I often am reading from the NIV, and after Andrew's uh, introduction there about this is the book, this is the version we use in our classes, this is the version we use in our uh, sermons, I thought, hmm, I better switch to the ESV. Yeah, but then, then you won't bring them. That's, that's part, of the, part of the strategy here. Um, I'll just put a few extra... And last week, I thought I was taping. If any of you had the chance to, to look. Um, and I think I turned it on, and then I turned it off. So Gil came down, turned it on, and said, don't touch it, just put it on. <laughs> don't mess with it. Um, let me get, begin by giving an overview of the Sermon on the Mount, which for some of you, you will have heard now for three times. Uh, Let's begin with prayer. Our Lord and our God, we gather together around your word. We bring all of our concerns uh, to you, those personal and those social. We ask, Lord, uh, that you might be very present in the midst of all of our blessings and all of our trouble, and that we would turn to you. We'd learn how to turn to you in the midst of everything. Thank you, Lord, for these uh, sisters and brothers in Christ. Together we praise you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I suggested that this is the text that helps us define Romans 12, 1 and 2. Remember Paul's appeal, I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Well, Matthew 5 through 7 helps to define what that looks like. And when Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly, here's a picture of what that life is going to look like. Um, When Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, here's a picture of what it is to live that human flourishing, that gaining life. At the top of one side of this, the redefining easy, I maybe should have numbered it, redefining easy, you see that side? Jesus revolutionizes our values, our vision, our loyalties, our priorities, our strategies, our attitudes, our resources, and you name it, and Christ reorients us. And I guess the, the text among the John 10 and 12, Romans 12, this verse by Christ in Matthew 11, and this is the message version. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, 
and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy on I won't lay heavy anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. I think the Sermon on the Mount guides us into a different kind of easy. I mean, the easy yoke isn't easy in the American sense of the word easy, in that it's convenient. I wouldn't say it's easy in that sense. But to live under his yoke is the best kind of easy, best kind of responsibility, the best kind of rhythm, the best kind of understanding of uh, what is valuable in our life. I say here that today's laid-back, easy-going, connect-the-dots, paint-by-number Christianity on sale everywhere is not found in the Sermon on the Mount. Every day is a choice between ambitions and visions and masters, and may Jesus win every day. Toward the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it's not on your sheet, I'm sorry. Um, I know it, uh, I didn't put the text in this time. Um, Verse 21 of Matthew 7, break open those new Bibles of yours that are packaged. Uh, (laughs) Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Uh, The reason I start there is because Yesterday, in Corinth, Mississippi, I was with a cabinet maker. I was at a a presbytery meeting for the Evangelical Presbyterian uh, Group Society, um, and I was transferring my credentials from the Presbytery of the East, the church that we worked in at Central Press in New York City, to here, South Central, and uh, working out of bounds at the Church of the Advent and at Beeson Divinity School. And over dinner, um, Virginia and I met uh, a cabinet maker and his wife. And the reason I begin with this is because we started talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, this text, and he quoted this from Matthew 7, used to scare me to death. Because would I be found among those who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? And the Lord will say, I never knew you. And he was speaking out of his Baptist tradition. The feeling like he never was adequate, never satisfied the requirements, never accomplished the list of dues, always had a problem with the don'ts. And he he just, out of a religious tradition of inadequacy, of not meeting the mark, he felt this tremendous vulnerability before the Lord. And then he was introduced to the Reformed faith. 
that we are justified by grace through faith because of Jesus Christ, not ourselves. It's a gift that we receive. And he said he slowly learned how to have the assurance and the confidence that Christ's electing grace, Christ's saving grace, Christ's sustaining grace had provided for him. And it was really, I, I, this, I, I began the conversation with him. We, we ended up there. But I began with my thinking, this guy is a great example of a salt and light disciple. In his business as a cabinet maker, he said, you know, there's just, there's opportunities every day. Every day the challenge of living for Christ is there. And he said in the conversations, in the, in the way of dealing with people and relating. And I thought, man, this is a, he is a good example of what it is to be salt and light. Remember we said last time that Jesus begins with a character description that's only possible by the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Not just sad, but mourn for their sin, for they will be comforted. And the list of eight quality characteristics that start the Sermon on the Mount root, basically, under, we root our personal understanding in complete dependence upon God and his mercy and what he has done for us in Christ. That's how we begin. And you never graduate from that. You never kind of grow out of that, this is where I always have to begin here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who I am, in need of the mercy of God. And that mercy is given freely in Christ. But then that leads to a salt and light impact in the life of the believer. And you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on into saying that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, there's no life in you. And how shocking that must have been because they were the quintessential righteous people. But it wasn't a heart righteousness. It was an outside, imposed righteousness. But this that's being talked about is an inside-out righteousness, the righteousness of the heart. And with that righteousness of the heart, then there's salt and light impact and a visible kind of righteousness. The priority that Jesus places in the sermon is what the world sees in us. And what the world sees in us is not what comes in chapter 6, the praying, the giving, the fasting. That will come. But what comes first is this visible righteousness. And he gives us six or seven, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And what the world is supposed to see is love instead of hate. Purity instead of lust. Fidelity instead of infidelity. Honesty instead of dishonesty. Reconciliation instead of retaliation. Prayer instead of revenge. And we could only do this, we could only do this by the power of the Spirit of God, by those who have been completely dependent upon, completely dependent upon the mercy of God. Then, you know, let your light shine before people that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That describes this visible righteousness. 
And not the praying, the giving, and the fasting, which is described in chapter 6, is something we do before God, before the Father. To be seen by him, not to be seen by people. And so the praying and the giving and fasting is sort of like between us and the Lord, not between, not something that is for show. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount carefully, you see that sometimes the contrast is not so much between the secular pagan and the Christian, but between the religious types and the gospel types. That the conflict is between religion and gospel. And so don't pray the way the pagans pray. Don't pray like the people, who, like the Pharisees who stand on, a, on the street corner uh, trumpeting, trumpeting. Out of what a word, trumpeting. Trumpeting their work. Uh, but instead, do those secret righteous acts before your father. And then that leads to a description of do's and don'ts, but a different kind of do's and don'ts than we have heard before. After the giving to the needy in chapter 6, and then in chapter 6, verse 5, I don't know. This outline isn't really very helpful until the end. Um, if you turn the page over, ask in prayer. I guess I never like being limited by my outlines. Um, uh, I, the second page begins with ask in prayer. And so the praying and uh, the giving and the fasting, the second element on the turnover page is enter the narrow gate. Chapter 7, verse 13 uh, through 14. Um, so I'm in chapter 6, chapter 7. Uh, do not judge, uh, do not give to dogs. And each one of these really could require a sermon and a full explanation. I'm happy to take any questions that might pertain to one of those just for a point of clarification. But he comes down to the conclusion of the sermon, which is extensive. He uses a series of metaphors to conclude the sermon in talking about two types of gates, the narrow and the wide gate, two types of prophets, the true and false prophets, and two types of disciples, the true and false disciples. And the conclusion, building on the rock or building on the sand, all to say one thing. All to say one thing is that it does come down in the midst of all of this grace, in the midst of all of this mercy. You do have a responsibility. There is a choice that we hold ourselves accountable to. And that's kind of an everyday choice. It's interesting, uh, in one of the phases of of my study of this book uh, at Harvard, there was a group of business people who formed a committee, a, a society, a small group. Harvard Evangelical Laity Involvement Exercises is what they called it, Helix. And these business people at Harvard um, conducted a seminar in which they talked about what it meant for them in their businesses in their careers, to be salt and light. Here's some of the questions that they asked themselves. And at the end of the seminar, each person wrote in response to these issues and questions. So listen, if you would, and think in terms of your own career. 
your own work. How has your choice of a career in a particular vocation been governed by the values of the kingdom and in your unique gifts and abilities? So how has your your career been impacted by your kingdom in Christ responsibilities? The second, what are your overall objectives as a missionary to your chosen vocational discipline? I believe that all calls are equal, that we're all called, we're all called to salvation and to service and to sacrifice and to simplicity. We're all called. I don't think my vocation is any holier than, than your vocation if your vocation reflects the call of God in your life. I believe that very strongly. Um, I get pushed back in the seminary a bit on that um, because I think we're all accountable to the Lord. We're all responsible for the Lord. And this, you know, at this stage of the game, I've, um, I've been blessed to have some key people in my life, our life, that have evidenced this to me and driven the theology home to me. Uh, when I was in the church in Denver one day, a six-foot-tall, six-foot-two Asian uh, man came into my office, and I'd heard about him, Dan Lamb, but I had never really met him personally. He came in, and uh, I had heard by reputation that he was something of the Asian invasion. He came into my office, and he, he had a habit of, uh, you know, his pockets were full with phones and keys and everything. He took everything out of his pocket and put it on my desk, and then sat down. And he said, uh, can you write a curriculum for me for a Bible school in a week? And I said, well, Dan, I suppose I could. He said, well, I need it in a week. I'm going to Mongolia, and I'm going to start a Bible training place. This was just at the time where Mongolia was opening. And he said, I'm going to start a Bible training college. And uh, I've made some headway. I've talked to the mayor of Ulaanbaatar, and uh, I've rented a room. And that was my first occasion for really meeting Dan Lamb. I went to, ended up going to Mongolia six times. Uh, went with Dan the first time. We actually got kicked out of the room that had been approved in the community center. Um, and we met outside in sub-freezing uh, temperatures for one of those classes. But the Mongolians were tough, um, tougher than us. Um, but Dan was a contractor supervising employees on three different continents. And when he was centered in London, one weekend, and Grace, his wife, calls it that fateful weekend, they went to a John Stott Kingdom of Christ weekend. And they both, very sincere Christians, long-term committed to Christ, but their eyes were opened to a kind of salt and light impact that they could have that they had never dreamed of. And John Stott, I, 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 probably many of you know, I mean, he's my kind of Anglican. Um, and in a way, this is what I said to Andrew when we talked about coming. I said, well, if there's a, a John Stott sensibility at the, at the Advent, uh, uh, that would be one for one with me. 
Uh, I think his theology is tremendous. Uh, and so uh, John Stott had a tremendous impact on Dan and Grace Lamb. Now, uh, as and Dan, uh, less and less business as time went on, and more and more kingdom penetration. Started Nam Pen Bible School in Cambodia. I was also there twice. Um, and uh, at one point, there were 400 lay Vietnam pastors moving around Vietnam that were funded by Dan. Uh, you couldn't be a part of his mission unless you bought in at $10,000. Wasn't interested in anything less. Uh, so I wasn't part of the financial mix on that. Um, uh, but uh, just a tremendous respect for what Dan did. Now that may be kind of the heroic description of salt and light, and I wouldn't expect any Dan Lambs in this class. Uh, I'd expect your salt and light impact would come out a lot more like mine, kind of the daily basis of parenting, the daily basis of grandparenting, the daily basis of living in your vocation for Christ and his kingdom, and thinking through every aspect of your values, your loyalties, your fidelities in relationship to that. But I was blessed to know Dan. Uh, Dan died in a plane crash um, flying from uh, Beijing to Moscow. Um, He was in an Aeroflot flight um, where the pilot got locked out of the the cabin and um, it it crashed. Uh, So I spoke at his memorial service in Denver unless a Seed of wheat falls to the ground and dies uh, from John 12. Um, And we've kept up, Virginia and I, with Grace, um, who now lives in Hawaii. Third question on Helix, the Harvard Evangelical Laity Exercises. What are the specific areas in which your vocational discipline is hostile to the gospel? What are the specific areas in which your vocational discipline is hostile to the gospel? In what areas is it friendly to the gospel? So, I mean, you're asking, where do I stand sort of in antithesis to my career? And where can I sort of gladly assimilate into my career? And that's keeping, uh, that's a question of discernment. Um, Question four, what kind of evangelistic ministry do you intend to have with those who work in proximity to you? Five, what kind of discipling ministry do you hope to have with those Christians who share your vocational environment? Uh, A week ago, um, across the street, I have no idea what direction I'm in (laughs) in this assembly room, but across the street from the Advent, that Regent Bank building, you know, um, in the Alabama room, there's uh, two lawyers from Independent Presbyterian Church that are hosting a Bible study group, noon hour, every other week, for mainly Independent Press people um, going through First Peter. And I had the opportunity to be with them uh, two weeks ago. And they are really... Uh, they're kind of evangelizing and working through the, the nitty-gritty of, um, you know, lawyers are very talkative, I've, I've found, and, and very uninhibited in expressing themselves. And we had quite a wide-ranging discussion um, 
about a number of issues. And I get credit to those two IPC uh, lawyers for initiating, hosting, getting these people together, studying the Bible, and thinking it through and praying together. Uh, how great it would be if, if this just proliferates, this type of activity uh, throughout the city. And I don't mean just studying the Bible. Uh, you know, I, uh, we're not limiting salt and light impact to direct um, biblical uh, work. It's the kind of work that we do in terms of, of just sharing the gospel, sharing Christ, being supportive. Even at times when you might not name the name of Christ for a long time, until uh, you're kind of ready and they're ready to hear it. Number six, and this is the final one, how will you balance the pressures on your time, particularly with regard to family and other relational responsibilities in the light of God's kingdom work? I guess I was just encouraged at the time I wrote this book on the easy yoke that there were these Christians at Harvard asking these serious questions about life and vocation and ministry and praying them through, talking them through, uh, interacting. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I got a call from uh, a coach, a golf coach, actually at Calvin uh, College in Michigan, who was convening a group of people from about 12 different athletic departments around the country to come together and talk about how Christ applies to athletics and coaching and and sports. So we met three times, came up with a, a, a declaration with respect to Christians and sports. But I thought, you know, this is a great model. Uh, realtors could do this. Bankers could do this. Insurance people could do this. Uh, software technology people could do this. Getting together, praying through, thinking through, what's the impact of God's kingdom work, and the support that is shared and felt. I mean, that was just great to be with these people, uh, with students in athletic uh, aspects of, of life and education, thinking through how does Christ really impact the way we do things. Um, at the, my watch broke this morning. Uh, kind of interesting, isn't it? <laughs> The one day where my timing is important. Um, the uh, the first sermon was ten minutes. I think the second sermon was Virginia. How long? The first one was fifteen, and I wasn't keeping track because I was sitting down. <laughs> 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 um, and then the second. No, the next one will be probably 20. Anybody going to be here for the... <laughs> uh, let's just the conclusion aspect of uh, on the second page there after building on the bedrock. Jesus weaves. You see where I'm reading? Middle of the page. Jesus weaves his conclusion with metaphors, gates, wolves, fruit trees, and storms to stress a single meaning. The conclusion of the sermon calls us to act wisely because there are extraordinary consequences to our actions. We can choose the right path or the wrong path. We can lay the right foundation or the wrong one. Jesus would be remiss if he did not warn us that the responsibility to choose wisely, discern carefully, and act faithfully was ours and ours alone. Number one, 
These are just sort of five concluding summary aspects. The light burden of the easy yoke does not remove from our shoulders the responsibility to discern who's telling the truth and who's in, who is a wolf in sheep's clothing. I love Paul's prayer in Philippians. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of God's righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. But seldom do we put love and discernment in kind of the same sentence, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would discern. So the burden, the easy yoke doesn't mean that, you know, we're footloose and fancy free. free. Uh, Number two, we might like an indecisive maybe, a kind of of middle-of-the-road Christianity that is all too common today. But what Jesus gives us instead are either-or alternatives, two ways, broad and narrow, two teachers, false and true, two please, words and deeds, and finally two foundations, sand and rock. You kind of get the either-or emphasis that Jesus brings to the sermon. Number three, apart from the grace of Christ and the saving work of the cross, it would be impossible to convince people that the easy yoke is doable, let alone easy. But for those who live under the yoke, there's absolutely no other way to live. Some of you have really experienced what it is to live under that easy yoke, and and would you switch it? Would you get out from under that easy yoke? I doubt it. Number four, there is an inexhaustible quality to the Sermon on the Mount. We could live in this sermon forever and never master it, but with each fresh reading, it leads us closer to the master. This is probably, at this stage of the game, is something I probably should have memorized. Matthew 5 through 7, I should just have it. Um, I don't. But I mean, I, 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 there's just this quality about it that uh, I don't think I could ever get to the bottom of it. Number five, we don't have to go anywhere other than right where we are to work on the sermon. You don't have to travel to Mongolia or um, Cambodia uh, to work on this. This is uh, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning work. This is pertinent applicable to our daily life. And we can begin now to be this character, obey these commands, keep these devotions, accept these prohibitions, follow these imperatives, and by the grace of God, this moment can last forever. This is the Jesus way. So, um, consider yourself introduced uh, again, I'm sure, to the Sermon on the Mount. Just remember I said at the outset, religion makes really good Pharisees. Sermon on the Mount makes really good disciples. Uh, Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these, my sisters and brothers in Christ. Bless us, Lord, we ask, with insight and with discernment that we might be pleasing to you. Thank you for your grace that makes us so. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.